welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Nina Shelson. Nina is a general partner with Canaan Partners on the West Coast. Her investing style leans toward hard science, which you can see in Pact Pharma, a company developing neoantigen-targeted T-cell therapies for cancer, Tizona Therapeutics, a targeted antibody developer for cancer, and Venetti, a software platform to help cell and gene therapy companies manage their supply chains and scale up with these intricate medicines. Nina is also a powerful advocate for helping women advance in biotech. She has developed her own platform with a podcast called Women Who Venture, or Woven, to amplify voices of strong women leaders. She organizes meetings to help women executives extend their networks. And as a successful VC who sits on a lot of company boards, she's in a position to open doors and uplift people, and she takes that role seriously. I saw Nina do this at close range when she joined me last summer on a trip to climb the highest peak in Africa, Mount Kilimanjaro, as part of a fundraiser for the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. It was very important to me as the team captain to assemble a gender-balanced group. Nina played a key role in helping make that happen. Now before we start, this interview was recorded in early March. I was already sheltered in place and a bit anxious at the time, but we didn't talk about the pandemic. I've held on to this conversation for a couple of months to squeeze in more timely news-oriented episodes of the long run. This episode is more in keeping with the traditional format of this show, which runs longer and discusses the guest's personal journey. I know everyone's busy, but I think we need to have these kinds of deeply humanizing conversations to understand each other better as people, not just one-dimensional professionals who do X or Y. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Now please join me and Nina Shelson on The Long Run. Nina Shelson, welcome. Thank you for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. So, Nina, before we start with your story, I'd like listeners to know that you and I have a little bit of a backstory. Um, You were one of the participants on my Kilimanjaro Climb to Fight Cancer Expedition for Fred Hutch last year. And uh, I'm really uh, grateful for that. For, for not just for participating on the trip, but uh, your mission to help me get that team to gender balance, which I thought was really important for women's networking. Um, and you, um, I remember this specifically when you agreed to join the team, um, I asked you for help, uh, recommendations of other great women that you could recommend to join this trip. And you sent me a list immediately of about five or six names, two of which immediately agreed to join the trip. (laughs) Um, So this was just like matching up words and actions um, in an amazingly powerful way. Um, And uh, I I just, uh, ever since that, uh, I've, I've thought... Uh, I need to have a, have you on my podcast to talk about like how do you actually make a difference in, in uplifting and advancing women in biotech because you're someone who knows. Well, well, thanks for that. And gosh, what an amazing trip! What an experience! I mean, the group, the guides, the porters, Tanzania. Um, a huge thank you for catalyzing that that trip. And I think um, 
I think so much is possible for balancing um, diversity with just some deliberate effort. And you leaned in and to give some he for she credit, you know, Bob Moore also uh, agreed that this should be 50-50 and we shouldn't stop unless we got there. And we got there, which is amazing. Yep. Yep. It just took a little extra work, um, but you have to set that goal and then execute on it. Yeah. And there were some other really amazing, and maybe we'll talk about this in the conversation here, but there were some really amazing uh, insights that came away from that climb for me um, as well on group dynamics and what a sense of shared purpose and, and what a, a leadership uh, dynamic can really do to bring a group of almost 30 people together and instantly build a team. Uh, and some of the lessons of the particular kind of leadership that you and then Eric and, and Lachva read our, our, our formal guides uh, showed is something that I've incorporated into into my uh, sort of venture and board member and, and even family life. Interesting. OK, well, why don't we get to that later? Um, but for starters, I'd like to have you tell me and our listeners about your story, because I don't know a lot of this and I'm sure a lot of people don't either. So where were you born and raised? So my story, my story is kind of a long one, and I simply haven't been able to figure out how to make it short. Um, and I don't really love talking about myself either, but the cliff notes are that I'm from Scandinavia. I was born in Finland, but I've lived most of my life in the U.S. Uh, I was raised mostly by a single father. Um, we moved around a lot, and I assimilated a lot, and I'm sort of a chimera of all the people and places I've lived and encountered and experienced uh, over that. Um had a bunch of, of turmoil and some significant family loss and financial limbo along the way, but also some really incredible opportunity and, and abundance. Okay, well, I need to, I need to ask you more about this. Um, single father, um, wh- what happened with your mom? So my parents, um, div- they separated and divorced when I was four, five, six years old, and my father ended up with custody. And so I lived with my my sister and my father, and we ultimately came to the States. And then along the way, he remarried, and, and uh, during uh, some time later, my, my actual uh, biological mother passed away in a car accident oh. when I was 13. Oh, sorry to hear that. Um, okay, so you had one sibling, a sister? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually the um, second child of my dad's second marriage. So I have two half-brothers, twins, uh, who are a bit older and then a full sister. And, uh, and my half-brothers, in turn, have a sister from their mother's second marriage, uh, who, although she's not a blood relative, you know, she's sort of my, my quarter sister, the five of us are, are very close. Okay. Okay. So it's a blended family. It's a little bit complicated. You, you came to the United States, sounds like right around when you're entering elementary school. Exactly. So I lived in Finland. I was born in a really small town uh, west of Helsinki in Finland. Um, and my mom was uh, Swedish Finnish and my dad Swedish. So I'm sort of a Swedish citizen because that was my first passport. But I consider myself a Swedish Finn or a bit more Finnish uh, by sort of uh, nationality or identity. And I don't know if you know much about Swedish Finns, but it's a long, long, long standing, almost medieval uh, era standing uh, minority population in Finland that takes Swedish as its first language. Um, it's about 6% of, of uh, the population today, uh, sort of vested of history uh, going back. It's language and a, and a bit of a separate ethnic identity. So long story short, I'm, I'm a bit of a mix. Uh, but we moved from Finland to Sweden because my dad was Swedish uh, and had some work there uh, when I was five. And then ultimately to the States right before I turned eight. 
and we landed in uh, Northern Virginia, just outside of uh, Washington, D.C. And what did your dad do for a living? So both my parents were uh, worked. Um, uh, my They were both the first in their families to go to college and overcompensated by also doing graduate work. My mother became a physician and my father was a lawyer. He had actually studied some in the U.S. Uh, for college and for law school and then back in Europe and was practicing uh, uh, corporate, some corporate law. Okay, okay. And it was that work that brought us to the States. So um, corporate law, I mean, they generally do pretty well. So this is a, a comfortable suburban upbringing. Is that right? Or Well, um, Scandinavia, you probably know a little bit about taxation uh-huh. and first generation um, sort of middle class. And my father is brilliant as he was intellectually and uh, at times professionally was not particularly good at creating uh, material comfort or financial security. So I would, I would say there were elements of, of um, great middle class opportunity, great education, opportunity to travel, exposure to music and arts, a real premium on, on learning. But we had long, many stretches of pretty hand to mouth existence and a lot of moving and a lot of instability did he because speak, of that reason. Did he speak good English when moving to the U.S.? He did. He spoke great English. Most of the Scandinavian countries have fantastic English instruction beginning very early. So, you know, uh, he, he spoke fluent English and multiple other languages as, as well, for that matter, um, but did so with a, a, a pretty British English accent. Okay. So you, you had that too. Yeah, my sister and I were too young. My sister had a little bit of English. Uh, I had had none when we moved here. Um, so that was definitely uh, a big transition. It was both, you know, an incredible adventure and a, and a very difficult shift to, to come to the States because of the language uh, barrier. And my dad did speak it, but with an accent. And, you know, kind of surprisingly, especially for like being in sort of the the beltway area of Washington, D.C. that you'd think of as, you know, quite international, you know, we, we, we were teased and pressured a lot. It was a, it was um, tough. You sort of learned the power of charm as a defense mechanism, but also how to really very early on find, find true allies, true friends. Well, this is a, an immigrant story. Um, everyone is different. Um, your circumstances are a little different, but um, that's... Um, that sounds like you know going into the deep end of the pool, um, entering school, finding new friends, uh, strange language. Um, you kind of have to figure it out where you fit. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this the other day because it's voting season, and I'm still a, a Swedish citizen with a, an American green card. And you know, even even adults can be really cruel. When I was in first grade at this little elementary school, and in uh, Virginia, my teacher wouldn't let me stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance with all the other kids, even though I had killed myself to memorize it. Oh. And I remember I sat and sobbed while other kids stood and recited it. And, you know, that stuff leaves a mark. And I wonder if that's part of like a deep, deep subconscious reason why I haven't naturalized to American citizenship as sort of a, you know, a very, very uh, subconscious F you to Miss Ward mm. for, uh, for not letting me say the pledge. Well, sadly, we have seen this uh, nativist strain time and time um, again, resurface. Right? Um, yeah. 
Um, okay, so and I'm sure you got teased. People couldn't pronounce your name, right? <laughs> still, still probably true. <laughs> That's true. You know, and in fact, my father wanted to change it and to drop, you know, it's KJE two L's, and he wanted to drop the J and drop the L so that we'd be Kelson once we decided to stay on in the states. And my sister and I protested so vehemently. We had a real attachment to the to the name. Uh, and it's funny, in hindsight, I sort of wish, why didn't we drop in? Because I certainly didn't do any better by marriage, because I, I would have to spell my husband's name just as much as I would have spelled my maiden name. Um. <laughs> okay. So um, did you said you moved around a bit. Um, how long were you there in Virginia? Where else did you go? Yeah, so ultimately we stayed on in the States. The, the project that brought my dad to the U.S. extended, and he met an American woman and remarried. And that triggered a series of moves, first from uh, McLean, Virginia, out to Loudoun County, Virginia, a more rural area, and then to Connecticut, where she was uh, from, uh, and again to another place in Connecticut where her aging mother was living. And, you know, so moved a bunch, but made some really great lasting friends in, in both places. And then... Uh, Ultimately, they uh, separated and chose to divorce, and uh, my dad moved uh, for a spell to Kentucky and to New Hampshire, and and I sought out and enrolled in boarding school um, in no small part just to get some stability for the high school years. Okay, so so I went to Exeter. Were you doing uh, public schools prior to that? Public schools prior to that, uh, completely, and, and happily thriving in in those environments. Really didn't know much about what boarding school, you know was like when we moved up to Connecticut and I was uh, in seventh grade, my sister stayed behind in Virginia. She went to, she joined a boarding school there as a way of having continuity with her, her friends and community for her last year of high school. But I had been public all the way. But then seeing that it was highly likely that I would be moving with my dad two or three times during high school, it seemed like boarding school would be a great great option huh. for, uh, for stability. Okay. Now, what kind of student were you in these years? Middle school, high school. Uh, I was a you know I was a striver. I was generally a great student. Most subjects came easily to me. Uh, you know, eager eager learner. You know, there's always the disruption of a bunch of moving and reassimilating and finding new friends. But um, I did well in school. I was a strong athlete. Um, made friends pretty easily. Um, what sports? And generally, even you know, I played soccer, ice hockey, and lacrosse. Mm-hmm. And excelled reasonably well at all of them and, and loved them. I've always been a pretty fit and athletic person and anything that lets me be active and outside and so, makes me happy. <laughs> I know. We could get to that later. Uh, but you go to Exeter for boarding school. And is this your entire high school experience? For sophomore through senior year. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and so what um, was the big life-changing experience about going to boarding school? Well, I mean, I'd always been a pretty independent and, you know, self-sufficient kid. So I think, you know, being able to, to make the transition to not living at home was, was not so, so stark. I think living, you know, living in proximity with all the kids you go to school with, there's sort of no place to hide and there's no, no relief from the trying to keep up and to fit in and to belong. So that's probably a, a fairly intense, intense part. Um, it was an incredibly academically rigorous school with also great music and arts and sports. And in that sense, it was sort of a, in many ways, a meritocracy. If you could, you know, achieve and do, um, you could find a place. But um, but also a hard place to be a kid that 
you know, looked comfortably middle class or had the right clothes and the right stuff, but was constantly walking the fine line of financial aid and almost not graduating because of unpaid tuition. And then having the family disruption of losing my mom and my stepmom and my dad sort of coming unglued. So it was a real, you know, mixed experience. Um, I think high school is not easy for, for anyone. Um, but, but those were, were my threads of, of, of drama. But wow. made some of the best friends of my life. My first boyfriend in true love had better teachers than some of my professors in college. And, um, you know, intellectually was really, really, really nurtured there. So... Exeter. Um, now, did you get interested in science particularly then or biology or did that come later, like going to Stanford? You know, I think I think I was trying to think about why healthcare or when or did I was there ever a moment where I thought I was going to do something else? Um, I think I've always had such a profound love of nature and animals and birds Um and with that has come sort of an interest in, in how things work and grow. And um, certainly in high school, I was really interested in, in the science classes. And I also took every, you know, elective I could, marine biology and, and the like. Uh, I was also really interested in sort of nature literature, nature poetry um, and, and the like. I'm not sure that in high school I was thinking about that, that a future job or life would be. In science, I was really interested in in writing and journalism and sort of international affairs as well. Um, but there was always there was always science and there was always nature. Typical teenage kid, you're interested that, in lots yeah. and lots of things and could lots go of in different th- things, lots of different directions. Um, Still am. I've never <laughs> been tempered at the buffet of life. Um, I pig out. So uh, that's great. So you go to Stanford, all the way to the West Coast. Had had you been there before? What were what was that? Um, what were you imagining that would be like for you? Uh, I was imagining it would be 2,300 miles away from the Northeast, uh, uh, including, you know, including from what was known and, and a bit from, from family, um, and that it was California, which is, you know, opportunity and freedom and certainly lots of access to nature, uh, as a school or university, a strong mix of science and liberal arts, um, enmeshed in nature, but accessible to a sizable city. I'd never visited. I just applied. Uh, and this was sort of pre-World Wide Web. So it was on the basis of a really beautiful, glossy catalog and a college advisor that said, you know, it's a good school. It wasn't, it wasn't as well known, you know, in the Northeast. So only a couple kids a year would, would go from my high school. Uh, but it just seemed, it seemed like a, a great a great fit and, mm-hmm. a, and a, a big and important change at a time where I really felt like I could use a bigger pond. Yeah. So, you know, you're uh, becoming a young adult now, like, uh, you know, classic teenage rite of passage going off to college. Did you decide early on that biology was going to be your major, your thing? Yeah, I think, I think, um, not, not so much my freshman year. I think the advice that I got from, I, you know, of of, uh, of all the things my father did to sort of imprint uh, a love of learning and the importance of education, he was never particularly involved or directive about what my sister or I thought about studying. Um, so I, I didn't really have much, you know, thought partnership from a family perspective. But I had, you know, the typical college advisor who said, you know, your your goal of freshman year is to try a lot of different things. 
I had been um, recommended to this fairly large uh, freshman, um, large sort of unit of freshman um, uh, liberal arts sort of immersion class that took up a whole bunch of credits. So I didn't have a lot of other units to play with. And I was advised, you know, to sample a bunch of different things. So my freshman year, I wasn't really thinking about what do I want to um, major in. I, I did the structural liberal arts curriculum. I took medical anthropology and computer science and uh, psychology class, linguistics, mm-hmm. probably because I didn't know what linguistics was and I thought it would be good to find out. Um, <laughs> and then uh, towards the spring, I started realizing that I, I was really interested in, in more in the life sciences and also sort of philosophy of science and health policy kind of direction. So I started stacking my my uh, credits in that direction and, and chose human biology as my my major and wanted to, at that point, to do pre-med as well, but realized I was not going to be able to get that done in, in the four years. I was going to finish without, without all the prereqs done. Okay, okay. So was there a particular class or teacher that stands out where you, you got the bug for biology? Um... I would say, you know, it's hard to say that because it, it for, you know, for bio and chem, I mean, they're just such large survey classes. I mean, the professors that blew my mind were Robert Sapolsky, who's more um, behavioral psychology, uh, or there was a physician who taught a, a bioethics and philosophy of sort of science-oriented class called Bill Hurlbut. That was another one in the philosophy department that was sort of deep philosophy of science, Richard you know, Dawkins type type stuff. Yeah. And um, they were what really deeply inspired me. Okay, so and you're- a couple couple of professors that I ended up TAing for um, eventually because I, I so like their their teaching style and that that subject matter content. So you're still sampling from the buffet, and this is actually turns out good experience for becoming a VC, <laughs> reading widely, thinking mm-hmm. broadly, all those things. Um, but Okay, so you you graduate um, late '90s here, and it's time to you decide you weren't going to do pre med, and, and why was that? Or you weren't going to go to become I, a doctor? No, I, no I, I was pre med, and I wanted to come become a doctor. I just wasn't able to do all my pre med requisites in the MCAT in my four year undergrad years. So I graduated with a job that I thought would afford me the time to finish my last prereqs and take the MCAT. And I was just going to be applying a couple of years after, after my undergrad years. So I went to the Kaiser Family Foundation where I had done an internship as an undergrad. Um, they are sort of an operational foundation that does a lot of policy and survey research in support of, of um, it really, they're a bipartisan institute, but really in, in support of, of more informed public and, and a policymaking body in, in healthcare in the U.S. So you get a and job. And it turned out to be... So I get a job. You start I enroll making, in start making community some college. I start making some money, but I also had lots of college debt, so it didn't feel like I was, you know, feeling flush or anything like that. And I was doing night school classes to try to get my my pre meds done, but it just became too overwhelming. The job was long hours with some travel, incredibly stimulating. Worked with really wonderful, wonderful mentor uh, bosses there, but it became sort of clear that I I. I couldn't do both. And so I decided I was going to leave the foundation. I wanted to move back to the East Coast, to New York for personal reasons. And my game plan was to take a, you know, a job that really was more nine to five so I could finish the prereqs and, and, uh, and, and get on with my plan to go to medical school. And I just was hopelessly naive about what it costs to live in Manhattan and what a, you know, nine to five lab job could pay. And, arrived in 
Manhattan spent a month re- coming to the realization that I had to change my game plan and then a month looking for a job and got super, super lucky to get, you know, a starter job working at a healthcare hedge fund. And it completely changed the trajectory of the rest of my life. Which one was that? Oracle Partners. And so healthcare hedge fund, I mean, you're looking at publicly traded biotech stocks or what did they have you do? Basically, in building models and going to meetings and taking notes and uh, processing press releases and news flow for the trading desk um, and just, you know, drinking from the fire hose. It was 99 turning to 2000 and the velocity of IPOs and follow-ons was incredible. And I was a research, you know, associate to a, a principal who was a physician uh, drug developer who'd come over from industry and just, you know, tried to keep running, keep my head above water and um, pretend I knew something when really I was greener than green. But this, so this is a pretty demanding environment, quite obviously. Uh, were you still trying to do the night classes or did that just kind no, of fall by the no, wayside no. immediately? No, that became, that became a, a dream deferred. The doctor without borders was going to be, you know, at this point I was starting to feel finally what it's like to, to, to make an, a nice paycheck and with that in mind, I was like, hey, this, this I could actually, I could do this for a couple of years and then I could go to school full time. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. Uh, but there was no way I was going to do it on top of that, of, of the, of the job. Living in New York in your 20s. to my great surprise. Yeah. <laughs> um, living in New York in my 20s, which is uh, something that I recommend every young person, young woman do. Uh, if you can find your way and find your feet, it's a pretty empowering uh, thing to to do. It's an incredibly intimidating but magical city, um, and I'm ever grateful for that for that time. Now you did this for a couple years, uh, and then you moved on. What was that transition about? That transition was about two things: one, um, wanting to be finally realizing, hey, there's this really incredible uh, symbiosis between finance, capital markets, business, and science and medicine. And you can have incredible impact and also access. I mean, the, the people who I was able to spend time with by virtue of, of being on a fun platform were people of stature in academic science and medicine and industry um, positions that I would, if I were to go back to school, I would, I would train for 10, 20 years before I would ever be eligible to sit in the room with, uh, which was incredibly um, humbling, but also really inspiring to get to be close to those, those kinds of minds. And, um, and I also uh, realized that at the hedge fund level, you're, you're trading. And if you're a long short fund, you're also, you know, quite often betting against. Um, it's very daily, it's very high uh, velocity, and, and that doesn't feel like my personality. And so I was learning about this whole ecosystem and realizing that there is this thing called, you know, venture capital or going into a, a portfolio company. Um, and I wanted to do something, you know, in the earlier stage of the, of the whole ecosystem. And I wanted to get back to California. If you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. For $149 a year, you can get a steady stream of exclusive in-depth articles about the latest in biotech from me and from an outstanding cast of contributing writers. Discounts are available for companies and universities that have multiple readers. TR is supported by readers like you. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe for more. 
Okay, so that leads you to Bay City Capital. That's correct. Okay, and so what was your job there? So when I went to Bay City Capital, it was a different model than it is today or than it became. It was it had been started by three really tenured um, executives, really you know founders, CEO, really successful entrepreneurs in, in biopharma, who were advising startups and taking some stock for their service and investing a bit personally and had wanted to scale that. And what started as a conversation with the Prisker family about partnering uh, in a small way uh, to, to scale their activities became, you know, a fully minted and uh, SEC registered merchant bank. So they had a consulting arm, a banking broker dealer, and then uh, the venture activities. And I was sort of toggling across all, all three. Okay. Were there uh, any women there? There were. There were several um, uh, women, uh, impressive women. There was a Debbie Yu who had been at Delphi Ventures beforehand. She was a physician by training who'd been in uh, management consulting and then in venture. And uh, she was running the venture group. And she had two uh, sort of deputies, Jung Choi, who's now in in operations in the industry, and Karin Mueller, who uh, um, went on from Bay City to be part of the 5AM team and now is in entrepreneur CEO of a startup company here in the Bay Area. And joining about the same time as I did was Nahida Smiley, who was at Bay City and then went on to Aberdare Ventures and now does uh, uh, consulting. So there were, there were a few women there. So you had, it sounds like some that were more senior and experienced, knew their way around the place, and others that might have been more junior like yourself at that time? Yeah, you know, now that I think about it, at, at Oracle Partners, the woman that I worked for was a managing director there uh, at Bay City Capital. There was a, a woman general partner. She was part of the essentially the founding team of the of the firm, and a couple of other really impressive and hardworking, very compelling uh, female colleagues. Um, and it's just been natural for me, I guess, to to see that. Did you feel comfortable in both of those places? Because you know, a lot of times. <laughs> This is when things go wrong for young women trying to break in. In in regards of of, of female uh, mentors or bosses not being um, supportive, or just generally that it can be hard for a, a younger woman to get a foot in the door in any business or industry. Yeah, I think it's more the latter. But venture capital, of course, the numbers are what they are. It's not uh, known for being the most um, accommodating or welcoming or supportive place? You know, I, it's a funny question, um, Luke, because um, I'm not sure that I've ever been comfortable writ large anywhere. I think I've always, because of how much I've moved and assimilated, I've always been a mix of um, jump in, let's see what we can do together, want to fit in and, and be, be part of it, but always feeling a little bit like which one of these is not like the others. And so that's maybe kind of a natural state for me. And my compass has always been work really hard, work really hard, uh, be earnest and productive and sincere in, in that work, strive for, for excellence, and hope that merit sort of is what rises, rises the, to the top as much as possible. And like with every school I changed and every town I moved, you know, if you find one or two true trusted allies, how amazing is that? That's, that's, that's such a gift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if I look back holistically, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate in the opportunities that I've had. 
Uh, I can't say that every organization has been perfect or that I've been perfect in every organization, but writ large, it's been an incredibly fortunate uh, trajectory. Okay. And, um, and I've tried to be myself and tried to make things better where I can and to, to make it better for, yeah, for those that come behind. Hearing you describe that mentality of your mid-20s reminds me a lot of just how I was getting started as a you know kid from the upper Midwest, comes out to a big West Coast newspaper, um, doesn't necessarily know like how to play the game, <laughs> office politics or what have you. Just like yeah. said to myself, I have got to just do the best work I can possibly do and chips will fall where they may. Things will work out. Um, I'll yeah. figure it out. <laughs> um, and if you love the work, which I know you do, if you really, really love the work, yeah. I mean, that is that is so sustaining. That's such jet fuel. So you found the early stage venture capital. I mean, you're talking to these scientific entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. I mean, you're learning a ton uh, and it's directed learning. You know, you're not sitting in the back of a lecture, you know, taking notes. You're <laughs> you're asking questions, the probing questions. It's really stimulating. Uh, you found this this suited you. Absolutely. I mean, I was still 20 years into venture. I still feel like a, an accidental tourist and, and probably frequently an imposter. You know, I have neither the deep technical training or the operating experience, uh, but I do love it so much. And I, I just really, really, really give a damn about it all, about the science, the entrepreneurs, the teams, the patients, the markets. Um, and I think I, and I think I care a lot about the whole ecosystem and I'm, I'm just really grateful to be in it. And I, I think that, I think that shows and I think that that helps me. You're not an imposter, Nina. I've been around some imposters and you I know you have too. <laughs> um, OK, so you, you move on to uh, Interwest now um, after a couple years. Was this um, did you did you get a promotion there? So I moved to I moved to Interwest uh, because I wanted to be 100 percent venture. And uh, as luck and word of mouth would have it, I mentioned that I wanted to make that change to a woman named Sarah Ehrlich, who was married to Chris Ehrlich, who was at the time an associate at Interwest and was getting promoted and had been tasked with hiring his replacement. So that was my foot in the door. And Interwest happened to coincide with a firm that I had been exposed to doing some banking work at Bay City, where I had pitched a company to Arnie Aronsky. And I walked out of that meeting with the management team and I said, Arnie Aronsky is never going to invest in this deal. But mark my words, one day I want to work for that guy because he's the smartest person I think I've ever met. And so I got super lucky to manifest an opportunity to join there. And uh, I don't remember exactly what my title was at Bay City when I left or what it was when I started at, at Interwest. But it was it was a lateral move, but one that had opportunity to be, you know, 100 percent early stage venture. OK. And uh, and it was a way, way bigger platform and opportunity than I could ever have imagined in that um you know, Arnie for both Chris uh, and then me coming up behind and Ellen Koskinis when she was at me just kind of threw you in the deep end. And so you got to learn a lot by doing and make your own mistakes, but also build a track record early and, and really, really learn on the job. This would have been the early aughts. And so you're thousands. Yeah. Early. Two, yeah. And so you're 2002. So you're um, becoming responsible for like making like doing some diligence um actually making the investment calls 
at, at a pretty yeah, early at early stage. Sourcing and diligence and co-sponsoring and then sponsoring, taking first board seats at a at a at a staggeringly early age for what I really knew about the world, quite honestly. So I'm I'm both daunted that I was given that opportunity and, and incredibly grateful that, that I was given a chance to learn like that. When did you become a partner? I think I became a partner in 2006 and a general partner in 2008, something like that. Okay. Okay. So um, was there a particular area of science that captivated you or were you still just, you know, kind of this intellectual omnivore interested in lots of things? Well, probably still intellectual omnivore, but I think what I was learning, and I think this is true to this day, is that I like the, the, the early building I really love the the partnering with with founders and entrepreneurs, and the team building and the sort of business planning. If I look back, you know, I've been doing venture now for 20, 20 years, um, and I've made twenty four investments in that time frame, and eight of them have been in cancer. I don't think that's because cancer is uniquely interesting to me or has uniquely affected me. Personally, although my father passed of cancer and know lots of people who have had it and are, are survivors or not. But I think that's reflective of what's been, you know, significantly invested and, and very productive in the industry. I've done several infectious disease deals. Uh, I was really compelled by the translatability of microbiology. And if you could get quicker readouts. And then, of course, we've all had to yield to the the challenges of market access and commercial in antibiotics, especially. Um, I'm very, really, really interested in in new targets for autoimmunity. I think there's still a lot of uncharted territory there, and and really, you know, meager, meager best best results from standard of care in a bunch of those those areas. You've so been witness. You've been witness to a lot of the. I mean breathtaking advances. I have too, as basically contemporaries it's, following the story. It's, it's amazing. amazing. It is amazing. Okay. So it, you, is, it is the most exciting time. For sure. Um, okay. So you're, um, you've made 24 investments, you say, and you know, I was looking at, you, you've had a few exits. You had some successes creep up over time. Uh, and you know, this is like really important for venture capitalists earlier in their careers to kind of earn their stripes. It's like, you know, did you invest in that deal that went public or got acquired? Um, so you can become, uh, you know, a little more established and then the game maybe starts coming to you. Is, is that how that worked? Oh, in a way, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that I think that's fair. You know, I had some some luck. The first deal that I sourced and co-sponsored it was er, very early in my tenure at, at Interwest, so I wasn't the the board member, but I had fifty uh, percent attribution for it, and was very clearly seen by the management team and the syndicate as having been instrumental in in sourcing and, and driving that deal. Is a company that quickly went public, and then a couple of years later was was acquired. And the network of that team and that syndicate was was very verdant, continues to be for me going forward. I was lucky that was early. The next two didn't work, and the one after that did. So I think the other thing that's really important in venture capital is having the opportunity to build a, a portfolio, especially in the very early stage, high-risk and more binary deals, to make sure you have the opportunity to build enough of a portfolio to withstand just the industry average loss ratios um, and... Inner West was, you know, very supportive of 
of my ability to invest and build build a track record. Um, I've had a number of you know really solid base hits, and I've had a monster deal, which is one that Wendy Hutton from Canaan referred to me, Labrys, and is part of the the connection that that uh, bridged my my joining Canaan when I decided to leave Interwest. Um, and that's you know to date the the deal of a of a career. It's just an absolute pleasure to work on that project. We help bring in the CEO who'd done two two prior uh, projects with with uh, Inner West, and uh, to get to work with such a, a wonderful guy was also a real treat. How um, did you? But yeah, you build your networks and your deal flow and your your brand, um, but it, you've got to be, as they say, in it to win it. So, was there a an epiphany for you uh, where you, you wake up one day and say, um, you know, I've accomplished a fair bit uh, and now I really want to start being really active about helping support other women in biotech? Yeah, I think that I think that moment was um, was most concretely when I joined Canaan. I mean, I, I think the sense of I've been incredibly lucky throughout my life and career to have had some just extraordinary women mentors, men too. But uh, from the earliest age, I've had such a sense that there's no difference between what a girl and a boy can achieve. That's probably a bit of the Scandinavian thing as well. I've been surrounded by girls and women who've been extraordinary. And so I, I definitely feel like, and I've had the opportunity to be in places where there were also some strong female role models in my career in particular, um, so I definitely felt lucky and like that was something to, to pay forward. But in joining um, Canaan, I felt a few things. One, I was a general partner. I was established. I had a seat at the table. I had a voice. I should use it. Canaan was quite diverse itself, and that was an incredible thing to be able to celebrate. There were two other female GPs when I joined you know, today half our healthcare team is women. We have four generations of female GP. Forty percent of the whole investment team is female. It's one of the and most so diverse. It's uh, one firms. of the most gender diverse and diverse in other measures too. But it's certainly one of the most gender diverse firms, particularly for a, a firm that's been around for thirty-two years. It's been diverse for a really long time. Maha and Wendy have been there. You know, fifteen, fifteen plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, so you and so that's that's you, extraordinary. So that and and then we also had a, a commitment to to a marketing budget in service of entrepreneurs and, and the ecosystem. So it was like the perfect storm to say, hey, um, let's let's formalize this this advocacy and activity. What um, how did you get started though? Because a lot of people, you know, maybe they mean to do well but they don't really link it to a concrete action plan. Uh, how did you decide you were going to get active and, and you know, set goals and measure progress toward them and all the things that you do in business, if you're going to be serious about this? Well, there's a bunch of things. Well, one, I think it's, you know, uh, taking advantage of the fact that I think um, the world was beginning to agree that the data about diversity being good for business was incontrovertible. No longer sort of have to argue that having different backgrounds, different genders, different ethnicities in the room led to more rigorous dialogue, more more uh, comprehensive uh, inquiry and, and 
didn't have to show the numbers about financial performance and uh, stability of governance and, and so on and so forth. Like that, we were we were over that hump. And so then it became about okay, well, what are the numbers so we know how to baseline? Where do we want to get to? And then what are the tactics? And it, you know, and so my my territory, so to speak, are. Uh, the biopharma industry and life sciences and venture capital. And the numbers are at such, you know, great odds, you know, especially when you think about um, the markets that we serve. Now, which numbers are you referring to, Nina? Well, the numbers of, of women in positions of leadership within venture capital firms. Okay. And in leadership in academia, clinical medicine, and industry um, within the life sciences. C-level so positions. That is C-level positions, deans, department chairs, uh, board representation. Um, they're, they're, they're so at odds with how women represent, um, you know, in, in, the, in the actual markets that we serve, the patients that we treat, the decision makers in healthcare the representation of healthcare providers, you know, if if you have you know thirty to sixty percent of healthcare workers and fifty to eighty percent of healthcare decision makers being female, why on earth do you have single digit percentages in the general partnerships in the boardroom and in the C suites? Now, of course, why, why are those rooms predominantly male? Right, and that's been that way. Forever, it remains stubbornly true. Uh, not only that, but you also one thing about biotech that that amazes me is you actually have a good pipeline of lots of bright young women coming out of graduate schools. Um, you know, fifty fifty, pretty much at the entry levels in the industry. But something happens along the way. You do, but you have you know ten percent or higher attrition with every rung in the in the uh, academic ranks or in the in the progression. Uh, in leadership and in, in industry. Okay, so you're and there's institutional reasons and and, and unconscious re- you know bias reasons for that. Now you're well, so well aware of that, is, but how, how did you think? Yeah. Okay, I can actually help. How how can I Nina help here? Well, um, two things. You know, um, one is is just being vocal and speaking up uh, and celebrating the the good fortune that I've. I've had, um, you know, one specific thing is there was a group of us, Margarita Chavez, Karen Hong and Gwen Mellencoff that had been getting together at JP Morgan for a dinner uh, of just women, uh, you know, letting hair down and finding a little bit of camaraderie during JP Morgan, which for each of us, I think had been anywhere between 15 and, you know, and now 20, 20 plus years of attending um, has been an, a, just a, an immersion in a very, very male male event. And we started chatting about, could we build this a little bit bigger? Could we get some sponsorship? And we went from 10 to 20 to 120 people with a waiting list and almost 300 women venture capitalists on the, on the invite list altogether. And started thinking about how can we, through deliberate gathering some content, some follow-up, have it not just be that, let the hair down and, and have a little fun during JP Morgan, but nurture, you know, deal flow, peer support, celebrating advancement, you know, advocacy, um, and to kind of create a ripple effect of activating all of us to do more in, in our various domains. 
to get more women into leadership uh, in the C-suite and, and on board. You and also... That was one. And that was, you know, greatly benefited from the, the resources and commitment of Canaan to put some some event planning and some money behind that. And we really leaned in on finding other sponsors, which we continue to, to do. Um, I sort of stood up a branded entity um, following on that called Woven for Women Who Venture. And under that umbrella, we've produced the the J.P. Morgan Dinner, the podcast series. We host sort of content and topical salons on everything from negotiating your equitable compensation to uh, crisis PR. Uh, we do networking events um, and sort of use it as a landing place for ideas and networks to, to you know, increase women on, on, in leadership. And, and through that, it's also become sort of a, a bit of a clearinghouse. You know, we get a lot of inbound questions for, do you know someone on the board or, or what's a great resource for diversity and inclusion training and, and, and the like. So that's created a bit of a, of a platform and a brand that we can help disseminate info and best practice off of. Yeah. For those who have not heard the Woven uh, Women in Venture podcast, I recommend it. Um, I will say I was listening to it before we spoke here today and I was feeling a little um, insecure, shall we say, because the conversations that you have with the women that you bring on, they're awesome women that you bring on your show. And you're able to have a different kind of conversation <laughs> than you naturally will have with a dude like me. <laughs> uh, it's just. It's I don't just, know. Maybe I'll have you on as a as a uh, as a subterfuge guest. Well, the idea really is. I mean, the re- idea for the podcast is women are, are reluctant to toot their own horns, so I want to help toot toot them for them. And um, there there isn't an, enough dissemination of of women role model experiences to make it as as natural and normative to see you know when i think about my experience as a as a scandinavian you know that all the investments have been made in the nordic countries to, to, for equal pay and for equal access to parental leave and for universal access to childcare has gotten to like equity of education attainment economic attainment workforce participation and pay such that like everywhere you look, there are as many women as men in positions of, of influence. And that's just not the way it is here. And so um, we need to make those, those visible role models more visible uh, in different ways. And then the other part is women are always asking me like, okay, I get it that you've, you've done, you know, well in your career and you love it and, and you're happy and you're influential, but like how on earth do you do life? Because you're a woman like any other woman that probably also has family commitments and social obligations and caregiving of an elderly parent and you want to look right and you are interested in being fit and well-being. Like, how do you do it? And so we also wanted to have a place to talk about that, which is kind of like the sisterhood sharing life hacks uh, for, for being able to try to have it have it all. I think that's really valuable. I mean, it's kind of hard for me from the outside as a guy. And I imagine a lot of guys who are listening to this right now (laughs) may be feeling the same way. Um, But because we don't walk in those shoes. Um, But that that networking, that support, the, the role modeling. It's really important. And it's not just, you know, you tooting your own horn. (laughs) If that's all it was, I I don't think it would be that useful. Um, But your your numbers are growing. Part of it is, yeah. And I think part of it is, um, you know, I, I think the next generation is increasingly egalitarian. And I think the 
sort of gender stereotypic roles are shifting a, a lot uh, generation by generation. But there's still a lot of just deeply ingrained socialization and parsing of, of roles. And I think if if one part of talking about women achieving in spite of the fact that they have disproportionate obligations at home and in family and disproportionate pressures from other social vectors like how they should look and, and so on and so forth. Maybe it, it does engender more empathy among their, their male colleagues or male partners to think about what it is like to walk in those shoes and how, how does that awareness and that empathy lead to different workplace policies, cultures, recruiting standards so that you can cultivate a more diverse workplace and so that you can create uh, opportunity to keep women through their childbearing uh, years and, and not have so much drop off when the, the load of, of, you know, career and caregiving becomes too much. Do you have some standard advice for um, the men that you encounter in biotech who, who mean well and want to do something? They want to connect their actions to this, but man, I don't know. They've done things a certain way always. And um, it just hasn't been like high enough in their awareness to, to really think deeply about how they can help. Um, I mean, I'll just give my own little example. It's not, you know, changing the world or anything, but I did say when I started this Kilimanjaro trip that I wanted it to be 50, 50 men, women, gender equity. I also wanted older, younger people. I wanted a real diverse mix and I knew I would need help. (laughs) I got Bob Moore, another white guy (laughs) to join my team first. And I said this to him, I'm like, you got to help me here. (laughs) I, I know some people and I'll try. But um, I don't want this to be like the proverbial, you know, 1950s style golf outing, right? Where business gets done on the golf course by a bunch of old guys, you know, smoking cigars. That's like perpetuating the problem. I want to, you know, do something that actually like there's a small, small gesture of like creating that more diverse world that we want. So that was just one little example. And I thank you again. You helped me. But um, what, that's, uh, what about in the, the real business world um, when, when men actually want to do something? What do you say? Well, well one is I think no, no numbers and uh, people respond to data. No numbers and, and be, be free in sharing them. You know, know that it, that it makes no sense that only a quarter of board members of Fortune 500 healthcare companies are women or that less than a quarter of executives at Fortune 500 healthcare companies are women, uh, or that women are only, you know, 13% of partners at venture funds that are active in investing in, in healthcare. Um, that doesn't make sense when, you know, women are way more than 50% of the workforce uh, in, in all, of those, all of those slices. Um, two, I would question, as you did so beautifully, question every, every group that is, that is uh, unrepresentative. You know, if you're, if you're in a, a, a meeting with influence and look around the room and it is, it is largely comprised of your same demographics, um, question that as, as being, uh, not good for not good for business. Well, what are we missing? What are the blind spots? What are the what are the blind spots? Mm-hmm. What are, what are the voices that are not being represented? And if you can't represent them directly, make sure they get represented indirectly. Um, and and take stock. You know, I, I think the 
the other piece is, you know, assess, assess the diversity and set targets. It's really hard to change what you don't measure. So, and so you know, ask folks, what are, what, are you, what are you doing about getting your, your leadership team to 50% women? What are you doing to get your leadership team to be representative in terms of, of, of other underrepresented minorities? Ask yeah. the question and ask for numbers because you can't change what you don't. And don't, don't ch- measure the thing that I would say too is don't just uh, bring it up once a quarter in a meeting. <laughs> it has to be yeah. a day a to day thing. Like, what am I doing today? And what am I doing tomorrow? Totally. Totally. And do what you did too with, with, with Bob and the Killy climb and say, we're, we're not going to fill this climb unless it's 50 50. So even if we could come up with 15 guys who want to do it, and even if we could, you know, come up with a list with our own sort of unconscious bias that that person's likely to want to do a Kilimanjaro climb or that person's likely to want to do this climb, let's instead be much more open-minded, cast a wider net and say we refuse to commit until we've, you know, matching one woman for every man that, that signs up. I think you can do the same in, in search. You can say, you know, I will not uh, hire a candidate until I've seen X number of underrepresented minority candidates. And if I'm not seeing that, what is it in my spec or what is it in my organization or culture that is making it impossible to, to, uh, to build, build that pipeline of candidates who, uh, who are more diverse? It's really important. Yeah. I think it just takes constant vigilance, um, awareness of the problem and uh, tenacity. It's so, it's so worth it. I, can't, I, can't, I cannot conceive of an organization that said we're worse off for our diversity or putting emphasis on diversity has made has not been worthwhile, or the effort that we put in to the first few candidates that we really sought in order to improve our leadership diversity um, have not had a dramatic positive impact on our ability to create a more diverse workforce overall. Diversity definitely begets diversity. Do you think that the California law that every company has to have a female board member, is that helpful? Yeah, I think quotas are absolutely helpful. It's a place to start. Uh, it's a place to start. Now, one to me, you know, <laughs> it's like the Ruth Ginsburg question. You know, um, how many Supreme Court female Supreme Court justices do you think will be the right number? And she said nine. So I think so for you know women representatives on you know five, seven, nine member boards and just having a quota you know target of a single one uh, to me is a low bar, but it's a start. Okay. Last thing I want to ask you, Nina, you brought this up earlier, the idea that you had some takeaways on leadership and group dynamics from that Kilimanjaro experience. Um, now, I guess at the risk of, um, you know, <laughs> patting me on the back, which I don't really want you to do, what was the takeaway here? Um, the impressions? I know you wrote something up, you thought about it and wrote it and shared something with our fellow climbers. Um, yeah, when we when we did our... Uh, our uh well, it's well, it's two. It's two things other than I think the commitment to diversity. When you said you were going to do it, uh, made a plan for doing it, really leaned in, um, and after we added a couple of more women, it became so much easier to get more and more women, and and hence we ended up at fifty fifty. And I think it was just awesome, and it felt like the most normal thing that we would have a, a gender balance group on that expedition. Uh, I, I can't imagine it having been any other any other ratio. But the two other things that, that really stood out for me, you know, when, when you first invited uh, me to join, I thought we'd end up with 10 or 12 people. And I'm an introvert. I'm a socially adapted introvert. I love people, but being with them really drains me. 
So I kind of had a panic attack when we got to 27. <laughs> and I also thought it was be, be completely unwieldy and really difficult to form a cohesive team with that many people. I but, worried about that too. <laughs> yeah. But the combination of sort of the who, which was partly the deliberate selection and partly some self-selection because of, of what it was we were doing, and a really strong shared purpose. In this case, we had two, right? We had raising money for the Fred Hodge for basic cancer research, and we had this you know, personal and collective goal of all of us getting to the top of the tallest mountain in Africa. And then a really great leadership sort of coach team made us come together as a cohesive team almost instantaneously and stay that way and work that way for the entire trip, which I thought was really quite magical. So I think a lot these days about the importance of the who and articulating and really focusing on shared purpose and then the consistency and the right touch of of leadership um, as, as being a magical alchemy for, for teams. And I, then on the leadership part. Yeah, um, you should, you probably want to mention Eric Murphy here, right? Yeah. I want to mention, well, I want to mention you and Eric and Lakba uh, in having the shared quality of just absolute credibility um, in your commitment to the expedition and also your kind of depth of, of you know, expertise uh, in mountaineering. So there was a, there was a credibility of just genuine, sincere, uh, commitment and, and having competency. What I wanted to say specifically about Eric Murphy was that, um, he really taught me this masterful trick of providing information, but not total command control instruction. You know, every day he would say, this is what I think the temperature is going to be. This is what some people like to wear. This is what the terrain is going to be like. This is how we're likely to break it up and about the timing of when we'll have the meals. And then he'd say, go make it work for you, which was really incredibly empowering. And I think it also, not just for self-agency, but it fostered this great collaboration and problem solving among the team. And then all three of you together just had this air of, this is not going to be easy. What we're attempting is really, really hard. A majority fail and it won't be comfortable, but it will be safe, it will be thoughtful, it will be doable, and it will absolutely be meaningful and maybe even fun. And it was. And I think that's an incredible analogy for biotech. Yeah. It won't well, be it's... easy, it won't be comfortable, it's highly likely to fail, but it's going to be thoughtful, well-planned, well-executed, should be doable, and definitely meaningful. And gosh, you know, it's, for me at least, been incredibly fun. Well, these guys you reference, Eric Murphy and Lakparita Sherpa, are um, senior guides at Alpine Ascents International and uh, good friends of mine, uh, great partners. Uh, we talked a lot about managing the group, uh, the size of it, and um, you know the type A personalities, a whole lot of people used to being in charge who um, would need to realize early on that they couldn't control every single bit of their environment that they were entering in, and they needed to accept that and, uh, and support each other along the way when things got hard. And it was just, uh, it was really beautiful to see everybody get on board buy in on that it and, really uh, was and it was like experience of a lifetime and friends for life it was an incredible incredible experience and and so so inspiring in a way that sort of lasted and lasted and lasted well well beyond the trip 
Well, Although not enough to make me interested in joining you on Everest base camp. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, there will be other trips. Another mountain, that, but not that, that one. Yeah. Maybe you and, and others will want to join sometime in the future and, and get um, all the all the human, all the benefits that come from um, taking on that kind of challenge, um, both personally and uh, serving science and the wider world. Um, Nina Shelson, we're out of time. Thanks very much for joining me today. Luke, thank you so much for the opportunity. And again, thank you so much for the invitation for that amazing, amazing trip and this opportunity to talk about uh, what's so near and dear to my heart in terms of making the world a more equal and balanced place. Thanks, Nina. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is by D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.